The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Anyone who's grown up watching pantomimes in Britain will be familiar with the story of Dick Whittington. At its heart is the rags-to-riches tale of a boy who leaves his home in the countryside and ends up becoming Lord Mayor of London. Not once, not twice, but three times. Few people, however, will realise that Richard Whittington was in fact a real person. A medieval entrepreneur who used his wealth to shape the fortunes of England's capital and who served as a moneylender to three different kings. It's a story that has long fascinated the author Michael McCarthy and he's just published the first detailed book about Whittington in 140 years. John Borkham spoke to Michael to learn more about Whittington's life and career and to find out whether he really owned a cat. So, Michael, to begin, I just wondered whether you could just give us a a very, very brief overview of who Richard Whittington was. I think some of our UK listeners might have a vague notion, thanks to the panto, but it would be helpful if you could give us a brief summary. Richard Whittington is not simply of mythology in the sense of the, the pantomime, but but in fact was a very real person. And he was a very significant person in London from the period from the 1380s to his death in 1423. He served as mayor of London four times. He was a supplier and a lender to three successive English kings, Richard II, Henry IV and Henry V, and did much else Besides, most significantly, on his death in March 1423, he left his entire huge will to be distributed for public and social works. And those works have been continuing under the auspices of the Mercer's Company for 600 years. Fascinating. Do we know anything at all about his early life? This is the great sort of conundrum about Richard Whittington. We know he comes to our attention formally and something that we can prove in 1379, by which time he's aged round about 2021 and almost certainly has been an apprentice mercer under the auspices of of Sir Ivo Fitzwarren. But there's a great dispute for many years over what the date of his birth was. And a hundred years ago, they thought the date of his birth was round about uh, 1350. In, In fact, his birth date is 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 sometime in the year 1358, 1359. And he, what we know is that he, he sort of, he doesn't know his father, Sir William Whittington. Whittington dies in the year of his son's, his, his baby's birth. And 
He is the third son in the family. He's two years younger than his brother, Robert, who we do know was born in 1356 or 1357. So that gives us a clue to his age. And we're also able to track his age to some extent. And we're helped here by uh, the mythology, by, by by the pantomime story itself, because virtually all the images that we have of Dick Whittington, the pantomime character, is of is of a young boy round about twelve years of age. He's he's not a man of twenty two or twenty three when he arrives in London, so he almost certainly comes into the household of Ivo Fitzwarren uh, as an apprentice, probably aged round about eleven. And that's really all we know about him at, at that stage. In in the book, I've tried sort of piece a jigsaw together about what sort of life he would have had as a young boy. He's the third son, so it's inevitable that he will go to London, you know, to make his fortune, as it were, which in fact he does, of course, as we know. But also we can gain some insight into where he was educated. There were two principal schools in the area, the Abbey School, Lanthony Priory. So it's it's quite likely he went to one of those or was tutored at home from uh, from a monk uh, from one of those And we can also gain some impression from what we know of trading Uh, at the age of 10. We we know some of the traders in Gloucester because there are some archives for those. So we know the names of some of the leading mercers in Gloucester. And I've assumed in the book that his mother, now a single parent, uh, would have actually gone to maybe three or four of these people and actually said, you know, can you sort of confirm who are the best mercers to actually send my son to? Or better still, I actually know who I'm sending him to, but could you give me further sort of substance so so I'm 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 certain in the judgment I'm making? Indeed. So when he goes to London, do, does he really have much say in the matter? Oh no, I wouldn't think so. Not as a boy of ten or eleven. No, and and I think that must have been really challenging. He will have he will have seen you know boys from other households. Not not too many, but he will have seen that in the area. And remember as well that what we've got here is is a Gloucester on the one hand, the point of departure, and a London on the other, the point of arrival, that have suffered immense turbulence, really, over the last 20 years since the Black Death. And in terms of your original question, which is, what do we know about him in those early years? The other problem we've got is something like 50% or more of the rural clergy died as a result of the Black Death. And it's that rural clergy that were most vital, most essential in actually recording births, deaths, marriages, you know, events locally. And, and of course, much of that gets lost during the Black Death. And, uh, and, that, and that's, that's, that's fairly typical of England at large, unless an estate has been fortunate enough, you know, to have archived stuff and it, it's been found and, uh, or, or, or maybe the, whoever was recording it survived the onslaught uh, of the plague. And, and how had the Black Death specifically shaped London? Well, the Black Death had a huge impact on London. So by the time, even 20 years later, that, that Whittington arrives, uh, London is still a place of great turbulence, great change, but also of great opportunity. Uh, again, London probably lost 
40 to 55%, those are the, the general sort of figures. So somewhere in the middle, around right about 50% of its population. And you were losing many landowners, you were losing many merchants, you were losing senior figures as well as sort of minor figures in, in the clergy. And of course, fathers, sons, wives, daughters. And of course, you've got the, the Hundred Years' War in the background that is also claiming lives. So you've got this extraordinary pestilence effect, affecting the capital city. London was probably a city of, you know, 60,000, 55, 60,000 before Black Death. And it took about 20 years to get back to around 50,000 in 1379 when we first come across Richard Whittington. In that turbulence, a number of things are taking place. One, you actually get land changing hands regularly because titles have been lost. The lives of those who held those lands have been lost. So what happens is you've got this great sense of flux in who owns what. So there's change there. You've got a, an extraordinary level of in-migration from people in rural areas, even 20 years on, trying to find work, seeking to make their fortune. You've got a city that is at this time becoming, um, these are merchants essentially, who are becoming uh, increasingly wealthy, and they're also becoming increasingly forceful in their relationships with the crown and vice versa. So Whittington comes into all of that. But underneath all of this is this sense of turbulence also means opportunity. And when I was first putting this book together, I had an alternative title that I used to have at the bottom of my notes, and I always kept it there. And it was Right Time, Right Place, Right Boy. Absolutely. Yeah, it does seem like it's very serendipitous, doesn't it? So he becomes an, an apprentice mercer. Can you just explain what a mercer would have actually done at this time? Yeah, uh, and, and it's best to explain it probably when he arrives in, in 1379. And why he comes to attention is he has enough money in his pocket, and there's a big question, how and why. He contributes £5 to what was called the city's gift to the barons. The barons had all got rather fed up with the city and, and life in London and had gone back to the shires. And of course, they were desperately needed back to spend money. This is an age of also of, of, of growing consumption, growing ostentatious consumption at court, but also among the city merchants themselves. And what Whittington has learned as an apprentice mercer is effectively a trade selling luxury luxury goods. Now, that might be uh, types of wool, that might be baubles, it might be jewellery, it may be, but, but essentially it's cloth, luxury cloths. And much of the wool that he would have traded, as it were, outside of the court, he actually had, he developed relationships with Venetian and Florentine merchants who would take this, this terrific English wool from the, from the area in which he actually hailed, uh, an area called the Rylands, and they would finish that wool off as, as very fine goods in, in Italy. And then he would bring it back. And that's where he began to make his mark and make his fortune. So essentially what we see really from 1381, 1380, 1381 onwards, throughout the 1380s, we see him arrive as a very young mercer in court, very significantly introduced by Sir Ivo Fitzwarren, his mentor, probably as backer and related distantly as families. And he uses, and this is one of the main features of the book, he, he uses Fitzwarren's military connections, his military networks. This is the time of the 100 Years' War. 
and both the father of the young Fitzwarren served in the Hundred Years' War, and both the father of Richard Whittington, but more curiously, Richard Whittington's father served as the banneret knight under Fitzwarren's father. So there is a connection. And whether Richard Whittington knew that before he left Gloucester for London, we don't know. But he certainly did by the time that he arrived. So there is a relationship between them. And the young Fitzwarren, probably in his early 20s at this time, is immensely well connected at court, really very, very well connected. And he was the ward at court for a time to Edward III's wife, and so he has these doors that he can open. And luxury goods is, is the trading commodity. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, so he becomes acquainted with royalty, doesn't he? And he ends up lending them money. I mean, how, how does that relationship work exactly? Well, what starts off is, is of course, he, may, he, he develops the relationships through these networks. So you find him in his early years trading, you know, as a very young man to people like John of Gaunt and to Thomas Beauchamp, Henry Bolingbroke, who's, who's Gaunt's son, and who actually he will then have a very close relationship with some years later when he becomes Henry IV. So he has all these relationships and with Robert de Vere and other favourites of, of the young Richard II, which was a court of great ostentation. And so he fits in. He's young, the court is young, he fits in. He, he sort of exercises himself through these relationships and he starts to make money on the trading front. But what then happens, as you rightly ask, is he then, it then becomes known that he's made quite a bit of money. He's very interesting as a character in that he keeps his money liquid. So he doesn't go off buying bits of London, which was almost the, the, the city pastime at that moment and, and places along the Thames. And he, what he does is he saves his money and he makes it known or it becomes known that he's got cash in hand. He's discreet. He's trusted. He develops an extraordinary uh, sort of reputation for integrity. And so people approach him, very senior people, and say, can we borrow this? We'll pay you back when. And, and at times, he, he doesn't push people for the repayment. He gets it back, but he doesn't push them. And all of that is a very measured style. But it's also, I'm not going to say opportunistic, but it was an opportune moment. And he knew he was far-sighted and intelligent enough to exploit those opportunities. And, and that's how he went through life. So you see him right towards the end of his life as offering counselling to Henry IV and Henry V, being responsible for you know, the building of the, of the roof at Westminster Abbey and things like this. And that's because in these early days, he has shown himself to be somebody of, of immense trust and integrity. He's a guy of, you know, he says in his will that, that you know, I've always seen myself as a very pious and devout man. And the reason for distributing my will in its entirety like this is because I see I've got a sense of social responsibility. Indeed. And he holds a number of official roles, doesn't he? But 
How does he first become mayor of London? Well, that's interesting. Uh, and it, it's one of the most interesting episodes in his life. He, he has served as sheriff by this time. And it was it, the typical route to mayor is to have served as sheriff one or two years before. But what happens prematurely almost, he, he started his civic career in 1384 as a common councillor. So that gets him into the sort of the civic path, as it were. But what happens without design, of course, is that in the summer of 1396, the sitting mayor dies in office, literally in office, Adam Bam, a very popular mayor who had saved London from probable starvation a couple of years earlier. And Whittington is not elected as mayor. He is literally installed by Richard II as mayor. And Richard II, at this moment in time, is having a very difficult time with the city, and the city are having a very difficult time with Richard II. So Whittington almost is, you know, it's it was that phrase, cometh the moment, cometh the man. <laughs> and uh, he's a well-known figure in the city, very highly regarded, very highly regarded young Mercer in the Mercer's company. And he's been a common councillor, and he's very close to Richard II and to Richard II's court. So who better in this moment of crisis... And the crisis really offers Richard II and Richard Whittington an opportunity that they both exploit, maybe for different reasons uh, and with different intensity. But Richard II says, I'm, I'm imposing him, I'm installing him for the, in this rather unusual circumstance, extenuating circumstance. We haven't got time to have an election. I need a mayor. It's a difficult time for all of us. It's Richard Whittington. And then we find Richardson the following autumn elected. So this is actually where you get the shift that you will have noticed that he's not three times mayor of London, he's four. So he's he's the first time it's it's for, for, for the part term and the other three times it, it's for the full term. And of course what's remarkable is this is this is the summer John of 1396, we still find him mayor again in 1419. You know, an extraordinary period and you know he's about sixty at this time. Yeah, and it's a it's a remarkable career, isn't it? And there are just so many crowning achievements. What what would you say were the the biggest successes he made at the start of his term as mayor during his first and second terms perhaps? I think in the first term it was stabilizing the mayoralty and it was actually probably taking the heat out of the intensity of the of the declining relationship between city and and crown. And I think he did that that rather well. I think over time, the thing that is most striking is his determination to ensure that trade is legal, it's not illicit, that weights and measures are literally that they're done properly. In his first couple of terms, he takes on the fishmongers. There there are groups within the fishmongers who have illicitly trapped fish in certain parts of the Thames where they shouldn't have. So he, he sort of wades in, no pun intended, on that. Um, he, he then gets involved in wider issues of weights and measures. As mayor, I think it would be right to say that he was offering, he was offering sort of economic counsel to each of the kings that he sort of worked with. He was a very sensible, sort of um, well-balanced sort of character who, who understood that um, London was not simply about the crown or the city. It was actually about common, the common people. And London was a big city, um, not as big as Paris or, or some of the Italian cities, but it was, it was still the largest city by, 
you know, by a factor of eight or ten in England. And those people were largely impoverished, you know, the, many of them were ill. He developed very early on in the 1390s something that would only ever come to pass a couple of years after his death, which was he developed a huge anger and distaste for London's prisons, particularly for Newgate. And he made it one of his great life's missions that he would rebuild Newsgate. And he only finally got, the thing we all know about these days, the, the final planning consent, as it were, a short time before his death. So it was actually built posthumously. And uh, so I think he always had a great respect for law, great respect for, for trading, for, for, for rights, for, for civic, you know, for the correct form of civic governance. And, and that was important. And, you know, he, he, he comes at a time where everything's sort of in his favour, really, you know, sort of the, the, the lending and the luxury trades, the, the mercery, the, the role of merchants is beginning to change because alien merchants have have begun to be forced out of London by the time he arrives and thereafter. Um, we also see the Italian banking houses gradually shifted uh, out from lending. It was Edward I who really started to make an inroad. But by the time Whittington is lending money in court, the English kings are looking to English lenders, and he's prominent. And you mentioned uh, fishmongers earlier, but does he make any enemies during his time as mayor? Probably the he made he certainly made enemies of the fishmongers. Probably the greatest enemies he made were the brewers. And uh, fishmongers and brewers, I think, were were, were pretty tough group, groups of 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 people. And um, you know they've been described by other writers as as part of the uh, the victuallers' interest in London. And the victuallers' interest was the regular. I mean, if, if you if you said that mercers and fishmongers were often at it in terms of trying to get their man to be mayor. They they both were actually part of wider groups. So we would see the Mercers sort of, I suppose, allying with drapers and tailors and, and one or two other trades, whereas you see the fishmongers often allying with um, with the brewers, with fiddlers, uh, other vittler trades, and, and you get these two blocks of interests. Um, but I think it would be the brewers that he, he had the most difficult runs with. I mean, he, he took them to task in, in the mid-1410s and then very much so around about 1415 and 1418, 19 over the sort of the illicit sale of contaminated ale, of, of ale that had been diluted ale, that had been um, barley or whatever, had been stored and, and was mildewed or rotten, you know, which was causing sickness. And, and, they, and they were profiteering. And they were very arrogant. And he was determined to bring them to book. So much so that, in fact, he, he got into such a, a face-off with them around about sort of 14, 14, 21, that his own friends were actually saying, look, you, you need to back off here. You know, your, your, you know, your, your health is in danger, is, is at risk here. But there were also people, I think, it would be right to say, in the city and in other trades who felt, actually, it's not all about you. You know, what you're doing here, while we broadly agree with it and you're right, it could have repercussions for the rest of us. We need to get on with our trades and our lives. So don't rock the boat too much. And, and of course, he also, under Henry V, he was asked by, he was selected by Henry V as what was described as the only man in London that was trustworthy enough and experienced enough to, to head his investigation into usury 
which is a, a curious thing because there would be there would be other writers who would say, well, uh, Richard Whittington indulged in usury. It's just it's just the term that you deploy. Now, a little bit about Richard's personal life. He marries the daughter of his former master, doesn't he? He does. He does. And he's in the household of his former master for, for many years. In fact, one of the things that nobody's ever been able to sort of demonstrate with any any lasting sort of permanence was was where he went to live after after he left the household of of of, of Ivo Fitzwarren but you're, you're right Ivo Fitzwarren has a child Alison and and Whittington marries her in 1402 and you know and it is a it is a very powerful relationship because they've known each other through their lives and they develop a joint vision and that joint vision and and one of the things I found fascinating about this period I I I found five or six really sort of strong examples of leading mercers and, and other leading merchants in the city who who actually worked closely with their wives. They worked in tandem very often, you know, whether they were making donations to churches or to almshouses or to the edification or re-edification of buildings or whatever. And he 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 and Alice developed this vision for St. Michael Part and Uster and that that took some years to actually unfold in the very early days of that she died and it was a, it was an extraordinary relationship and i think it points it points to the progressive nature of it and it's not just that they also uh, became affiliated to mercery guilds in 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 the town or the city of coventry at that time with, with another couple who were their close friends and uh, so th- this shows that it was a it was a wider relationship and that you know it's it's families of particular trades very often in fact almost overwhelmingly married people you know the sons or daughters of people who were in the same trade and um and you could say that that happened here although Ivor Fitzwarren actually was soldier mercer and lender and many other things absolutely and Richard himself dies in 1423 he dies without children what happens to his wealth well, that's the interesting thing. I mean, that's the key point, isn't it? That he dies with he dies without children. There is no heir, and you know his his wife has has died before him. Sir Ivo has died some years before him, fourteen fourteen. And here you have a man who, by the time he encashes all all of his his money and his his assets and his chattels, it's it's estimated somewhere around seven thousand pounds, and he sets up a, a, a team of four key people led led by John Carpenter, who he'd known for a few years and became his chief executor and with whom he wrote the will over a period of two years before his death. And effectively, what he created was something that was quite remarkable. He created not only the passing on of his entire wealth and remarkable because it's been spent and invested over six centuries by the Mercer's company, by his own company, but also... He, to use a modern term, he created in that small group what I would describe in, the, in modern parlance as a task and finish group. He recognised that although he created a list of the things that he wanted to do, and many of those were actually done very, very quickly, you know, whether they were, the, you know, the giving of arms, the building of a wing at St Thomas's, as it was described, for, for single mothers, or whether it was building, you know, sort of uh, improving sanitation and these sort of things. The really the really striking thing is he said to these four men and gave the final say on this 
to John Carpenter. Most of this is going to take place after my death. And once I'm gone, I'm gone. And what's going to happen is things I've never heard of or been aware of will, will happen or come to pass. And I want you, and I'm giving you the authority, the executive authority, to make those spending and investment and donor decisions in my permanent absence. And that was a really interesting thing to do. It's, it's that entrustment of this extraordinary sum of money, which is, I mean, I, I've never got into the game of trying to say, well, what, what's that exactly worth? But, it, but in, you know, today it's, it would have been worth millions by comparison. And, and it's, it's an enormous gift in volume, but it's an enormous gift in the sheer breadth of the way it was distributed. And here we are, six centuries later, I mean, it's, it's, it's his 600th anniversary at the end of March. Here we are on, on, on the brink of that, and we still have a Whittington Hospital, a Whittington School, the Mercer's Company are investing in all sorts of social projects. And they were doing that, you know, even before his death, but certainly as a result of his, of his will, we're able to expand that hugely. And I've been doing that work ever since. That, that is a remarkable personal and a remarkable institutional act of charitable giving uh, over, an, over an enormously long sustained period. Now, this is, the, I guess, the big question. How did he become the subject of a pantomime? Yeah, it, it is. And it's an interesting one. And I, I always say to people that the important thing you need to know is if you've seen the pantomime, if, if you enjoyed the pantomime, you need to find out about the real man. Oh, was there a real man? Yes, there was a real man. Yeah, and here's the book. Um, but but more, more than that, I think the pantomime is very interesting for a number of reasons. One, I think it does give us an insight, which we both were discussing at the, at the beginning of the podcast, that, that he is actually saying to people, look, you know, I've done, or, or what we find people are saying about him, is that he's, he's probably done a number of these things that are actually attributed to the pantomime character. So did he have a cat? I don't think so. But would a houseboy who is an apprentice, but looking after parts of the house of his master at that time, have cats? Almost certainly. You know, it's 20 years since the Black Death and rats. Rats are a permanent feature of filthy, dirty, you know, London. So he probably would have been responsible for that, for going into the cellars and the hallways and into the yard. And the cat in, in, at this time in, in medieval life, but also mythology, is, is the cat. Cat could be looked both ways. It, it, it's as a sort of an icon or an adage of witchery, but more commonly, it's associated with very good luck. And I think the cat is introduced reasonably, on, reasonably, on reasonable ground, after his death, as, as something that helped him make his fortune. It was the measure of his good, his good luck. So it, 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 it's an icon. But I don't think we should read, read too much in, into it, even though people have found you know, small statuettes of cats here, there and everywhere in Gloucester and London and so on. But I think it's a charming part of the story. Um, but what it does, the story does tell us, is it tells us it was a, it was an allegory, really. It was pointing people to the fact, look, however poor, and he was assumed to be very poor. He wasn't, of course. But however poor you are, you could make your name in London. If you got on the road and you came to London and you had your wits about you and you were honest, you could make your way. And the myth, the, the pantomime myth, has him offering his cats or his various cats to rid 
the ships, the vessels of foreign traders, assumed to be Italian, by the way, of their, their rat infestation. And of course, he traded with Venetians, with the Florentines, Milanese, throughout his life. And that's, that's how he made his first fortune. So it, 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 it's, it's an important allegory. And if it's a means to introduce children to medieval history, that's, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. But what happens is that I think probably the core of your, your question and probably the, the real answer maybe you're seeking is that he dies in 1423, but w- within 15 years, we're already hearing of him. Somebody who's called in sort of the ultimate merchant, you know, the son of Morchandy. That's right about 1437, 1438. We don't know who that was. That was anonymously. But really from, the, from about the 1530s onwards, People are talking about him. They know about him. So that that has been handed down. That's been handed down formally. People will know of him because over the decades after his death, we will have seen his good works come to fruition, not least through through the, the officers of, of the Mercer's company, but also through the institutions that he'd funded before he died. So his name will be well known. He would have been well known as, as, as mayor four times. And all of that has been handed down. And that's why, if you like, I think sort of Elizabethan writers, dramatists, playwrights began to sort of hook into him and think, actually, there's, there's a remarkable story here. And even their, and their stories, the pantomime element of this, I mean, we move from history to pantomime really much later, you know, really in the 19th century, the pantomime takes off, late, the late um, 19th century. It's compelling, and it's a compelling story which has a great deal of truth in it. Now, I'd just like to say this: you know, this this book is a really impressive piece of research. It's so incredibly detailed, not just about Richard's life, but about life in England more generally. What what was the most important thing that you kind of came across during the course of your research? Is there anything that surprised you? It surprised me that, I mean, I knew I knew sort of London. Was had been very turbulent, and London, not just because of of Black Death, but in the thirteen sixties, right, the thirteen sixties and the thirteen seventies, and even 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 an occasion in thirteen eighties, London had had recurring pestilences, and I was I was particularly struck by the way people had coped with that, but mostly the the sheer economic recovery that London was able to sustain, despite the fact that England at large was in an economic depression for much of that time. So while places like, you know, Newcastle and Bristol, Chichester, the Essex ports, Hull, um, Suffolk, Gloucester, we, we find London almost able to reinvent itself. And he's part of that reinvention. He he pops up here, there and everywhere. And And of course, I think probably the other thing was his relationship, the, the intimacy of his relationship to the three English kings and, and the fact that we know that when Henry, Henry IV, who he'd known and supplied to as a, as, as a young man, came to the throne in, in 1399-1400, that Whittington was very concerned that he would be persona non gratis and that he may be imprisoned because he was, seen, he was deemed to be so close to Richard II. In fact, one of the first things that... Henry IV did, is he appointed Richard Whittington to his king's council, a council of wise and pious men. And all three of those kings at the very heart of this extraordinary period of medieval kingship, if you like, and turmoil and and the Hundred Years' War, here is this man 
who's a common thread all the way through that and is so close that not only does he start off as a supplier, he becomes a lender, he then becomes a, a pointed, he, he gets various sinecures. We see him as the, the, the mayor not only of, of, of London, but the mayor of the Westminster Staple, the mayor of Cal- the Calais Staple. He's, he's, he's actually overseeing the import of, of wool and cloths and other things into London along the Thames, makes more money from that. And he makes more money because he's so efficient in saving the money that the king was losing in tax revenue over many previous years. Here's a man that knows what it's all about, gets his act together, gets, gets the Exchequer's act together, but also actually takes, takes his slice. And I suppose the thing that fascinated me finally was that he never wanted to be involved in politics. He liked politics. He wanted to be where the action was, one step removed, maybe only a yard away, but not necessarily involved. So the mayoralty is seen as civic in his eyes, not political. So he has, he eschewed the notion of serving in the House of Commons. He attended he attended the Commons, I think, only once in his in his lifetime, maybe twice. That was Michael McCarthy. His new book, Citizen of London: Richard Whittington, the Boy Who Would Be Mayor, is out now, published by Hearst. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. <laughs>